Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not a panacea for pain. Following Jesus will not make you immune to suffering. In fact, obedience to God's command oftentimes doesn't mean that everything will be easy. It often means that we will struggle not despite our intimacy with God, but precisely because of it. Jesus was true when he said, his words were true when he said, that his disciples will face trouble in this world. When we submit ourselves to the will of God and things don't work out, it's easy to despair. What do you do when things don't work out? Especially when you seem to be doing all the things that you're supposed to do. You're being faithful, being obedient to God's call on your life. Yet, everything continues to fall apart around you. Where, where do you turn? How do you deal with deep discouragement? We're going to learn the answer together this morning as we consider Exodus chapter 5. And we're going to work our way through verse 5 of chapter 7. And we're going to set it up this way. We're going to talk about discouragement in chapter 5 and then encouragement in chapter 6 through verse 5 of chapter 7. So really simple uh, discouragement and then encouragement if you're following along. And, and the main idea that we're going to try to walk away with together this morning is that knowing God's promises empowers his people to defeat discouragement. That's the main idea. Knowing God's promises empowers his people to defeat discouragement. Let's pray together and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have together to come underneath the teaching of your word. We thank you that in some mysterious way, when, when we read the Bible, that it actually ends up reading us and laying bare our hearts and our secrets. Father, we pray that you would cause that to happen within each of us this morning that your word would summon us to a greater holiness, shape us into a more uh, Christ-likeness, and encourage us that we would leave here fully confident in your power to save and make all things well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of background of what's going on here to this point in Exodus. The, the book opens up with an awesome genealogy. We love genealogies. And it tells us that Israel is fruitful and multiplying. And then in verse 7, we're told that Joseph has died. And there arises a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, who's not going to honor the agreement they have. And so we see that this new sheriff in Egypt, the new sheriff in town, sees the Israelites not as a friend, but as foe. He sees them as a problem, and so he wants to address the fact that they are almost outnumbering the Egyptians. I think there's a little bit of exaggeration there, but the truth is that they are swarming across the land. They're a great multitude, and he's worried that they're going to rise up and take the land of Egypt from him and from the people. And so he says, gets all his people around and says, we have to do something about this. And they say, I know, we'll enslave the people, the Hebrew people. 
And so they go ahead and they do this, and, and the hope is, is that they wouldn't multiply as much during this time, but the text tells us the more they are oppressed, the more they multiply, and what's going on here is God is keeping his promise to Abraham to make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the number of grains of sand on the seashore, right? He's going to make them innumerable. He's going to give them a whole lot of descendants, and that's going on even despite Pharaoh's oppression, and so he comes up with two more plans, since that's not working, the slavery bit isn't working. He tries to get Hebrew midwives to kill the male children in secret, but that fails also. Then he says, we're just going to go out with all-out genocide here. All the male children from Israel have to be cast into the Nile. And then in chapter 2, we come across this special child who is cast into the Nile, but inside of an ark. And if you remember, we said that the author of this book has employed that term, ark, to point us back to the only other place that it's used in the Bible, which is in reference to Noah's ark. He wants to show us that this child that we are learning about is special, that God's favor is on him. And in the same way that Noah was able to deliver a group of people and God created a new people from him after the floods of judgment had come, this deliverer has God's favor on him. He will be the one through whom God creates for himself a new nation. Israel, those that would become known as the people of Yahweh. Only problem is, though, as chapter 2 continues, we, we see that uh, Moses, is, who's drawn out of the water, he's drawn out of the Nile, he's adopted into Pharaoh's own household by Pharaoh's daughter, he's eating at his table. He looks kind of like a deliverer at this point, like he's in a position of power and he would be able to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. But what happens next makes us realize he, he doesn't really look the part. He, he ends up murdering an Egyptian taskmaster. Then he goes the next day, he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrews, and one of them says, who are you to be judge or prince over me? You know, Who died and made you the president? You are not my judge or my ruler. You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Moses then gets worried and realizes that his secret is out. And he flees to Midian. As he flees, he comes to a well. And he sees that these shepherds are giving a group of girls a hard time. And so he chases off these shepherds in a kind of semi-heroic way. And then he goes back to these girls' house. They invite him over for dinner since he's such a nice guy. And Jethro eventually gives one of those girls to Moses as a wife. Her name's Sipporah. And so Moses is living in a land that's not his own, apart from his people, and he ends up having a child with support, and he names him Gershom, which means I'm a sojourner in this land. I'm alienated from my people. I'm alienated from my God. Things are not going so well for Moses, and, and it continues in that way. As we read at the beginning of chapter 3, he's shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law. We kind of said he's living in his father-in-law's basement and he's doing the job that nobody else wants to do. He doesn't look like a real winner at this point, doesn't look like a deliverer. And then something happens. God appears to him in a burning bush. The, the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. And we said this is before the time of those fancy gas logs that uh, have a fire amidst them but are not burned up. And so this is pretty extraordinary. And Moses goes over to check it out. And God says, I am Yahweh. I'm going to make good on my promise to deliver my people out from the hand of the Egyptians. It's been 400 years. That promise I made to Abraham in Genesis 15, its fulfillment is coming. It's just over the horizon. And Moses is thinking, yes, that all sounds great. And then God says, therefore, I'm sending you to Egypt. And Moses says, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I think you've got the wrong guy. And he lists five reasons why he can't go. And the last one is my favorite. He says, just please send someone else. I can't talk well. And God says, all right, I'll let Aaron go with you, but you are going to do this. And I am going to display my glory by working many wonders in the land of Egypt, which Egypt is the superpower at this time. I'm going to show the whole world just who I am and how powerful I am that no ruler of the world is as mighty as I. I am going to free my people. I'm going to use you to do it, Moses. Moses finally agrees, and then he asks his father-in-law, Jethro, for permission to go. And on his way, uh, we're made um, privy to the fact that Moses has not circumcised his son. And you remember, God gets ready to kill Moses because he's been disobedient to the covenant. And Sipporah steps in, and she, by her obedience, she circumcises his son. Moses is saved, and so he ends up saved by the obedience of his wife and the blood of his son. And we're already having a a proleptic view of what's going to happen in the gospel, that we are going to have our salvation through the obedience and blood of another. And so Moses himself is delivered from his own sin, and he moves forward with God's plan to deliver Israel, not only out of the land of Egypt, but out of their slavery to sin and to idols. They're going to be free to worship and serve him as they should. And so Moses and Aaron get before the people of Israel and they perform all those awesome signs. Remember, the staff turns into a snake on the ground and then Moses picks it up by the tail and it turns back into a staff. Uh, They had the thing where they dump the water on the ground and it turns to blood and uh, put the hand in the garment, pull it out. It's got leprosy, put it back in, pull it out. It's pure and clean. And the people at the end of chapter four have gone, God is visiting us. God has seen our affliction. He's heard our cries and they bow down and they worship. They can see their salvation. It's just over the hill. And this is where we are at the beginning of chapter 5. Moses and Aaron are preparing to approach Pharaoh. And we expect him, the most powerful man in the world, to cower before God's chosen people. To cower before God's chosen spokesman. And we read, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they answered, The God of the the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on on a three-day trip into the wilderness, so that we may make sacrifice to Yahweh, our God or else he may strike us with plague or sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your work. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from working? That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers, they're lazy, they're idle. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men, then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to these deceptive words. So at this point, to the detached observer, it it appears that God might be disinterested in Israel's 
affairs and that the ramblings of an old man and his brother before Pharaoh are not only ineffective, but counterproductive, right? Pharaoh scoffs at the idea of letting the people go. He, he thinks it's an April Fool's joke of some type, right? He's gonna, who, who put these? Who sent these two guys? This is ridiculous, y'all. It's kind of funny. Oh, oh, wait, you guys are serious? You seriously think I'm going to let the people go? I don't even know who Yahweh is. Who is that? The God, of the, Hebrews, uh, the God of the Hebrews has no authority here in Egypt. The only God in Egypt is me. I am Pharaoh. You must be here because you have nothing else to do but entertain silly fantasies of worshiping your God in the wilderness. You must need more work. And so Pharaoh ups the ante here by denying Moses' request that the people be allowed to serve Yahweh And he commands them to serve him all the more by increasing their workload and limiting their resources. And verse 10 through 21 through show us how things move from bad to worse. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says. Notice here there is a dynamic going on. There there is this um, battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. In verse 1, we have Moses saying, Thus saith Yahweh. And now we have Pharaoh's lackeys saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, or this is what Pharaoh says. And what you'll notice that Pharaoh's word seems to accomplish what it sets out to, while God's word does not. This is what Pharaoh says. I am not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when the straw was provided. Let's understand why this would make things harder. Uh, Douglas Stewart comments and offers us an illustration of sorts. He says, as iron bars or rebars strengthen concrete in modern building techniques, keeping the material from cracking and splitting, straw did the same for ancient clay bricks making it possible to use sun-drying rather than exclusively kiln-baking in their manufacture, and thus saving energy and money in Egyptian construction. I tried to think of an illustration where you would miss a key ingredient that holds something together. And I, I thought about bread. I'm not sure what keeps bread together. Maybe the way you knead it or gluten. I'm not, Sarah, I don't know what, what makes it stick together. The gluten. So if, there, if there's no gluten in it, then it would be really hard to make bread that sticks together. It, it would crumble. It would make the process more difficult. Not the greatest illustration, but you get the idea. It makes the making of bricks really, really hard. And so as the, this process is made more difficult and their quota is the same, it seems that God has, has failed to deliver on his promise. The people, have, their lives have not gotten any easier. Uh, they've kind of gone out of the frying pan and into the fire, if you will. Things have gotten worse. We read in verse 14. Then the Israelite foremen, this is slaves in middle management, if you will, right? So you have the slaves at the bottom of the rung, and then you have the foremen who are kind of uh, beneath the actual taskmasters or uh, slave drivers in Egypt. That's who the foremen are. And they they are Pharaoh's slave, I'm sorry, the Israelite foremen, whom are Pharaoh's slave drivers, had set over the people, that's the taskmasters, were beaten and asked, Why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. 
Look, your servants are being beaten, but it's your own people who are at fault. But he said, you are slackers, lazy. That is why you are saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. Pharaoh seems to be winning this clash between deities. His plague of increased work upon Israel results in their crying out not to their God, but to him. Notice how the the foremen identify themselves as your, that's Pharaoh's, servants. Multiple times, the Israelite foreman went into Pharaoh and cried out, why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants. Look, your servants are being beaten three times, and that's on purpose. They're identifying themselves not as God's firstborn, but as slaves of Pharaoh. And this is quite striking, especially considering they had cried out to God before, and now they're crying out to Pharaoh. They've gone to their oppressor for relief. How foolish. Might I suggest, though, that we we do this very same thing? How often when things don't go the way we think they should, do we find ourselves returning to old sinful patterns and behaviors looking for relief? That which enslaves can never set free. I think too many of us would rather have the bondage that we know than trust the God that we cannot see. Where do you turn when your spirit is broken? When you find that you are discouraged and God seems far? Where do you look for relief? As the foremen leave Pharaoh, they're still in despair and they blame Moses for their situation. Look at verse 20. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek or stink in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. I guess the foremen feel a need to vent their frustrations, and so they've they've lashed out at Moses here, but they really do have it backwards. I mean, this Moses, the one they are disrespecting now, is not only, he's not not the reason for their oppression, but he's God's instrument that will end that oppression. I mean, their, their complaining is completely unfounded. But still, it had a way of wrenching the heart of Moses. We read in verse 22, So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's caused trouble for this people. And you haven't delivered your people at all. Moses is crestfallen and in discouragement. He's having a little bit of a crisis of faith. And and for some of us, you might wonder, why does he have all these questions right away? God told him that Pharaoh wasn't going to listen, right? Seems a little bit more upset than he should be. He should have been ready for Pharaoh to tell him no. God told him that was what was going to happen. At any rate, Moses is upset and he begins questioning God. He's troubled by the evil that is swirling around his brothers, questions God's goodness. Why have you caused trouble for this people? He questions God's purpose. Why did you send me? 
And he questions God's actions. You haven't delivered your people at all. You haven't kept your word. I think like us, Moses was not aware of each and everything God was up to during his life. He needed to trust and he wanted answers. So disheartened as he was, look at this in contrast to the foreman, he turns to God in the midst of his discouragement. I think this is always the right move. We can follow Moses' example in this. That when we find ourselves in a crisis of faith or find ourselves discouraged, we can always turn to the Lord. God welcomes our honest groaning and questioning. I mean, there's no lack of grief in the Bible. I mean, there's a whole book named Lamentations after all, right? We see throughout the Psalms, they readily raise questions like Moses does here. How long, O Lord? Are you really good, God? Why do you hide your face from me? Why have you left darkness as my only companion? I mean, even Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's good to take your questions to God in prayer and to process your emotions together with him. What's not good is to turn back to those things which oppress. God hears his people. He hears. We've seen it throughout Exodus. We see it throughout all the scriptures. He's not absent. He's not asleep. He's awake, and he knows your suffering. Talk to him. And the, the point is to take everything to God in prayer. That old hymn rings true. The, you know, what a friend I have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. Says, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And it goes on, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Right? Go to him. He hears you. Should note that while prayer can and often does leave us with a sense of God's presence and the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, we often don't get concrete answers, right? The Rolling Stone lyric is true too. You can't always get what you want, right? Job figured this out. He doesn't get concrete answers from God. Moses won't get concrete answers from God here, and often we don't get those concrete answers. Why did this happen? But God does give Moses exactly what he needs, and he gives us exactly what we need. God will comfort and encourage Moses here by reminding Moses of who he is, what he's done, and what he's about to do. God comforts and encourages Moses by reminding him of his identity. God's person and his promises are the elixir that turns gloom into glory. His promises emblazon on our hearts the hope that is to come. And so we read of these promises at the beginning of chapter 6. But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you are going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of his land because of my strong hand. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh 
to him. That is, they did not understand the full significance of what it meant for God to be a saving God. God is going to make the meaning of the name Yahweh fully known. I will establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. I I already established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. God is reminding Moses of what he's already told him. He's telling him that he is in control and that he keeps his promises. God encourages Moses by moving Moses' attention away from Moses' self onto God himself. That's the the purpose of these I will statements in verses 6 through 8. God wants Moses to be encouraged and to encourage the people with the promises that he has made. Moses is to tell the people that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, will deliver them, will redeem them, will adopt them, will know and be known by them, will give them an inheritance. God is saying, Moses, I know you are hurting. I know you are down. I know things don't look that great right now, but my plan is in action. Don't look to what is, unse- or to what is seen, but to what is unseen. I am at work. Remember the reward of your faith. Remember my character. Remember what I told you in, back in chapter 3, verse 12, when you were initially worried about this, that I am with you. That's why you've got that staff in your hand. I will accomplish my will. Trust my sovereign rule. I think many Christians believe theologically in God's sovereignty, but practically uh, we're emotional train wrecks because this truth of God's sovereignty has not been ground into us, right? I can't, I can't point you to Romans 8 enough. It really is a treasure, right? Verse 28 always is a great reminder. It says that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. It's you and me who have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I mean, brothers and sisters, God is always working for your good. He's conforming you to the image of his Son. He's always preparing you for the glory that you will inherit upon Jesus' return. He is the sovereign ruler of all things, and he keeps his promises. We need to remind ourselves of this truth daily. As Jerry Bridges is famous for saying, we must preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to constantly bathe ourselves in the living waters of what is ours in Christ, those promises of God. Jesus has delivered us from slavery to sin. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has adopted us into his family. He's taken us as his people. We know and are known by Jesus. And Jesus has given us all that is his. 
We stand to inherit the true and better promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, graft these truths into your bones. All of God's promises, Paul tells us in First or Second Corinthians 1, have found their yes in Christ. You are Christ and Christ is God's. That means these promises are yours. They're yours. So look to these promises. Find peaceful rest during life's discouraging seasons. Remember, it might not look like God is at work. It might feel like he is asleep, but he's not. He hears, he's present, and he is at work. John Newton said that the way Christians might endure trials is by considering the doctrine of glorification, which in the Romans 8 passage I uh, just quoted, you saw at the end, it says they're glorified. Paul talks about it as if it's already done. But this glorification, it is, it's heaven. It's when we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And Newton said that Christians should not complain, murmur, or despair in light of that great inheritance, in light of all that is coming. He said we should imagine a man who inherited a really large estate worthy of millions and millions of dollars, but that that man had to go to New York City in order to get it. And as he journeyed there, his carriage broke down, leaving him to walk the last mile that he needed to go in order to claim his inheritance. He says, can you imagine that man saying, my carriage is broken. Woe is me, my carriage is broken. All is lost. This is terrible. Kicking and complaining and disgust when he only has one mile to go to receive such great wealth? He says, no, he'll, he'll walk that last mile with a smile on his face because he knows his inheritance is before him. He knows there is something great coming in, in the carriage. It's of minor, minor importance, minor significance. As Christian, we only have a few miles to go. In your difficult hour, friends, See and savor the gospel. Remember the promises that are yours in Christ. Our inheritance is not far. This life is very, very short. Your inheritance in heaven is not that far away. Look to it. Be encouraged by it. Know that God keeps his promises and that he is in control. That he has ordained that you are right where you are right now. He has you there. Remember that he's good. And trust him. Moses is apparently adequately inspired by this because for the moment, anyhow, he goes to rally the troops in verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. The people are in anguish. And their present reality dictates what they think God can and cannot do. They do not listen to Moses because of their cruel bondage. I wonder, has a difficult circumstance ever caused you to not hear the voice of God? Caused you to think less of him or doubt his wisdom and power? Friends, we mustn't allow the seasons of change to hijack our theology or our faith. I also think we can relate to Moses in regards to evangelism, right? Like Moses, we've been called into salvation and commissioned to tell others about Jesus and how they can take hold of these wonderful promises of God. And like Moses, many of us have experienced disappointment as we tried to puzzle together why anyone would reject this good news. 
I think this passage comes as an excellent reminder that our obedience to God's commands doesn't ensure the type of results that we might hope for or expect. It's a good reminder that we are to be faithful to follow Christ and that the results are up to Him. When I was in college, we used to say it this way, that evangelism is stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel and leaving the results to God. God is sovereign. This should give you peace. It means that the salvation of others is not dependent upon your performance or your ability to communicate the gospel with great eloquence. But it's entirely dependent upon the God whose word you declare. Sometimes the gospel will be rejected. Sometimes God's word will be rejected, such is the way of man. I think it's important to point out that Israel rejects God's word now, but will experience his salvation later. So we can take heart. There is still yet hope for our friends, our co-workers, and our family who have to this point hardened their hearts to the Lord. God saves sinners. It's our job to be obedient in proclaiming his word. I think that people can't hear Moses because they've got pain in their ears and rock in their hearts. Yet still, God urges Moses onward. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 10, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh? I am such a poor speaker. I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses is realizing some of his greatest fears. He says, I can't even get your own people to listen to me, Lord. Pharaoh hasn't listened to me yet. How will he ever listen to me? And at this point in the text, in the narrative, you have this genealogy, which serves a purpose, but it's a little bit like a commercial break if you've ever watched something on TV. As soon as the drama gets high and the the tensions are on the rise, the, the commercial comes and they're trying to sell you stuff and then they come back to your show. It's a little bit what the genealogy does here, except for it's trying to sell us on the pedigree of Moses and especially Aaron. The point is to say that these guys are legitimate leaders in Israel, and they are the ones who pioneered the Exodus. We're going to see this especially on the tail end of the genealogy in verses 26 and 27. It's kind of bookended there. It's going to say, this is the Moses, and this is the Aaron. But before I, I read that, though, I do want to say that genealogies are important. We're not going to read this one together, but it, they are important, and they're kind of fun. Usually, uh, they have a theological purpose, and so they'll skip generations, right? They're not exhaustive. Like Jesus' genealogy in Matthew has 14 generations. It's a great purpose to it. At any rate, there's this purpose. They want to show us something. So I think a really good way when you're reading your own Bible privately, if you come across genealogies, is to, to search for some names you know and some names you don't know, and then check out what they do in the Bible. So, for example, if we had time, some of the names I would point out in this genealogy would be uh, the likes of Korah, who leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and then is swallowed up by the earth, right? That's pretty awesome. That's in Numbers. Or uh, the very last one, Phineas, is important. He's the grandson of Aaron. He actually stops a plague of God against the entire nation of Israel by spearing a guy and the Midianite princess that he's sleeping with. Like, he just kills them with a spear because they're dishonoring God and serving Baal. Like, it's, it's awesome. That's in Numbers 2. Numbers gets a bad rap because it's called Numbers and nobody gets really excited about that except for mathematicians, I guess. I I don't know. Hebrew title's way better. It's Into the Wilderness. 
So maybe this week you're doing a little extra homework. You go, I'm going to read Into the Wilderness. There's some really awesome stories in there. Anyhow, the genealogy is to show us that this Moses and this Aaron are going to lead Israel out of bondage to Egypt. The Moses who thinks he cannot speak at all, that is of uncircumcised lips, he is the one that God is going to use to display his glory to all the world. And that's what we read in verse 26 of chapter 6. It was this Aaron and this Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. They're the guys. And then you see verses 28 through 30 at the end of chapter 6. We already read these verses in 11 through 13. And so they're a literary device that is signaling us to the importance of the genealogy. And they're just reminding us where we are in the story. So we had Moses saying, I don't talk very well, God. I told you how's Pharaoh going to listen to me? Genealogy. And then we're just being reminded by the author where we are in the story, right? Moses is saying, I don't speak really well. And so then we have God's response at the beginning of chapter 7. This is how God continues to encourage Moses. The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron your brother must declare it to Pharaoh, so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will, this is the last of the I will statements in our section, but I will put my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. He does all that so, in verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. These verses are focusing on the fact that only God is God. That God versus Pharaoh dynamic from chapter 5, right? Remember verse 1, Moses says, thus saith Yahweh, and then Pharaoh has his lackeys command the people, thus saith Pharaoh. This tension, this battle that's going on is picked up again here. Pharaoh has said, I've never heard of that God. And God is saying to Moses, oh, he will know exactly who I am. Moses is going to represent God before Pharaoh so much so that the Hebrew literally reads, I will make you not like God. It says, I will make you God to Pharaoh. I will make you God to Pharaoh. It really is a marvelous text, and Peter ends comments this way. He says, Moses will be an authority figure to Pharaoh rather than just to Aaron. We may think of this as an extra dose of power that God bestows on Moses for the purpose of confronting the king of Egypt. The halting dismissal that Pharaoh gave the first time will not be repeated. From now on, albeit not all at once, Pharaoh too will know that Moses is God's representative and is therefore someone to be reckoned with. Pharaoh will know the name Yahweh. Yahweh is going to lay his hand in judgment on Egypt so that they will know he alone is God. Notice there are two ways to know God in our text. First, you can know him by experiencing his mercy and salvation, as do the people of Israel. Secondly, you may know him by experiencing his wrath and judgment. But as Philippians 2 tells us, everyone will eventually acknowledge that Jesus is the true God and King of the universe. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is going to deal with his enemies, that's all of humanity, that's all of us, by either drowning them in the waters of judgment or by redeeming them through the work of the cross. The good news is that God's mercy is available to all who trust in Jesus. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I pray that you would believe and trust Jesus this morning. Brothers and sisters, also, when you face discouragement in this world, especially when you're listening to God's voice, God's voice, and it, it seems as if, uh, like the Israelites say, it's caused you to stink in the sight of others. It's not going well. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, went down into the stink of the tomb for three terribly discouraging days. That as his body lay buried, his followers' spirits lay broken. But the discouragement and the cold of the grave did not have the last word. It seemed as if God was asleep, as his chosen instrument lie dead. But God was at work. Because God had made a promise. He promised to end evil and save his people. He had promised the seed of the woman would save. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And he had to keep that promise. And he kept that promise because after three days, the tomb was empty. Because Jesus is risen. He's seated at the right hand of God and he's feeling just fine. And we can trust that he will return to make all things new because he's promised he will. He still has promises to keep. So when you have trouble in this world, when you are discouraged... Remember the words of Christ to his disciples in John 16, 33. It says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have trouble or suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Indeed, Jesus has conquered evil and death and sin. And though we live in the presence of evil and sin now, we will not then. And it's by knowing that God has promised to make all things well that we are empowered to defeat our discouragement. We can take shelter beneath the blood of Christ and claim the promises of God as our own. This is good news. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died and raising victorious over death so that we might inherit eternal life together with you. We thank you that by faith we are united to you, and that all is yours becomes ours. We thank you that the promises you have made belong to us. 
that indeed we've been delivered from sin's penalty and its power, and that one day you are returning to deliver us from its presence. We thank you that you've redeemed us from death, purchasing us by your blood. Thank you that you've adopted us as sons and daughters into your family. Thank you that you allow us to be known by you and to know you. Thank you that you've given us peace with one another and yourself. Lord, we thank you that you have given us an inheritance that is beyond measure. That you allow us to have a joy beyond the walls of this world. Lord, we look forward to that day when you will give us new capacities of enjoyment. When we're able to experience the unfathomable pleasures of being at your right hand. Being in your very presence of having your glory shine upon our faces. We thank you that you do not sleep on our suffering, but you've entered into it, and that you've suffered on our behalf, so that we might not ever have to know the pains of suffering again when you come and make all things new. This is our great and certain hope, and for this we praise you and thank you. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.